0: Hi, I'm Lindsay Furtado. I'm the FT's legal correspondent. I'm here with Kwaku Adeboli, the former UBS trader, who's been out of prison for about four months now. After his conviction in 2012, he served just over half of his seven-year sentence. Prosecutors at the time said it was an unauthorized trading loss and that he breached his risk limits by booking fictitious hedging trades. Adeboli has always maintained that that was the only way to meet the profit target set by the bank and that it wasn't dishonest because he was always trying to make money for UBS. I should disclose that we know each other from during the trial, which I covered, and that we kept in touch afterward, writing letters to each other, and have had many conversations since about the ordeal. Uh, This week, he's on the cover of the FT Weekend magazine, and he's here to discuss the entire ordeal, the lead up to the loss. Um, I want to know a bit more, Kwaku, about what you were going through at the time in 2011, what led to the mistakes, and talk a bit about what you've learned and what you want to do next. So let's start with 2011. What was going on in the lead up to the $2.3 billion loss at UBS, which happened in September?
1: Yes, it was September of 2011 um, that the losses crystallized. Um, Lindsay, before I start, I should say that um, nothing that I say in this interview or in recent days in any way is meant to diminish what happened or what I've been through or the price I've been asked to pay. I recognize that at the time of these events, the trading mechanisms that I used were um, at the time not deemed to be dishonest, but as a result of the rigors of this process, and having stood in front of a jury of 12 of my peers, I recognize today that my actions were dishonest, and the lessons I've learned as a result of that are important, and it's what I want to share.
0: Okay. Thank you for that. So let's go back to 2011 then. What happened? What happened?
1: Well in 2011 um uh we were um at the end of a process whereby we had moved from the transition from the early life of my desk to trying to scale up the profitability of the book.
0: You were on the ETF trading desk at in oh, UBS's investment bank.
1: I was on the ETF and index trading desk for UBS, yes. And
0: so you were a proprietary trader. You were trading the bank's own money rather than client money?
1: I was responsible for both. Um, okay. We traded on behalf of our clients mm-hmm. um, in terms of agency execution. We also provided advice to them as to our views of the market and what was happening. Mm-hmm. But we were also expected to trade proprietary, which is where most of our profits were generated.
0: Okay. Uh, can you explain a bit more for um, for our listeners what ETFs are, exchange-traded funds? Yeah.
1: So an ETF or an exchange-traded fund is an investment vehicle that allows um, retail and in- institutional investors to gain access to all the investment benchmarks in the marketplace. So you can trade an ETF that gives you exposure to UK index mm-hmm. or European equity indices, but you can also trade ETFs that give you exposure to commodity benchmarks such as oil, gold, silver, etc., um, soft commodities like hogs and wheat, mm-hmm. but also global benchmarks such as MSCI emerging markets, etc. So they're um really some of the most complex and um products in the marketplace because of the breadth of exposure they give to all classes of investors.
0: Okay. And there were four traders on your desk at the time?
1: There were uh there were four traders on the desk. Relatively indeed. young. Relatively young. Um I was the oldest although not the most senior. Mm-hmm. Um How old and were you then? I was 30 at the time. Okay. Thank you. And the youngest on the desk I think was 26 at the time.
0: And how important was the ETF desk to UBS's investment bank?
1: Well, I think the ETF desk um, was central to everything the bank was doing. Certainly, our position on the trading floor was in the center of the trading floor. And we had a responsibility to provide services to all of the equities business. Mm -hmm. So we had our clients coming from the hedge fund world, uh, institutional clients as well, prime brokerage clients and the derivative desks used us as well for their hedging purposes.
0: And the markets in 2011, how tumultuous were they?
1: Well, um, in 2011, we'd experienced considerable volatility throughout the duration of the year, starting Early in the year, with major dislocations in the banking indices, especially in the southern European markets, mm-hmm. um, obviously, there were serious issues with European debt, especially in southern Europe, Spain, and Greece, mm-hmm. which was causing major dislocations in the marketplace. In addition, uh, we had the unfortunate earthquake and tsunami in Fukushima and Japan, which mm-hmm. caused great volatility um, and a loss of confidence in global markets and economies. We also had issues uh, with the US debt ceiling. And generally, confidence after, you know, the considerable run that the markets had been through since March 2009, confidence was seeping out of the markets. And it resulted ultimately in the downgrade of the US debt by S&P in Mm -hmm. August of 2011. And of course, the London riots too.
0: Sure. And UBS was under pressure as well because of the subprime losses.
1: Well, yes, UBS had obviously been grateful to be bailed out by the Swiss taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would paid back those loans by then, but we were looking as an institution to embrace more risk-taking in order to increase our profitability across the group. Mm-hmm. Certainly the Global Synthetic Equities Division, which had been created in early 2011, which my desk was moved into, mm-hmm it was hoped would contribute considerably to the profitability of the equities division.
0: So you really felt the pressure in order to make profits, to to lessen the burden for everyone else in the investment bank?
1: Yes, indeed. I mean, the difficulty for us as a desk was that we were central to so much that was going on in terms of visibility of the market flows, in terms of advisory um, but also generally in profitability, the ETF and index desk by June of 2011 was responsible for about a quarter of the total profits of the GSE group, the Global Synthetic Equities Group. Mm-hmm. And we had made something like 75 to $80 million in profits that were visible. Mm-hmm. And in total, we had made $130 million in profits for the bank by June of that year.
0: Mm-hmm. So you had been very successful up until the point where the loss happened.
1: Yes. um, Most of that success had come from proprietary trading. Um, We had developed these mechanisms that allowed us to hedge the book better, to expose the bank to proprietary risk that was generating profits. Mm -hmm. We had basically surmised that the volatility in the markets was causing markets to trend downwards. And we'd had a series of bearish trades on the book for most of the year, really, mm-hmm. which is where most of our profits had come from. Unfortunately, in July, those positions changed.
0: Right. So, what was the decision that you made when the loss started to happen? It sort of spiraled out of control.
1: Well, we'd had what I can only class as a very heated debate mm-hmm. um, that descended into perhaps an acrimonious argument about what the markets would do next. Mm-hmm our equities division had come up with a considerable piece of research that stated that we expected the markets to continue the upwards trend that had begun in 2009. Yeah. We'd sent that out to our clients. And unfortunately my position was that I thought the markets were going to crash. Okay. I positioned the book that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a result of the conversations and the arguments we'd had about future market direction, um, I unfortunately was convinced to turn my positions around and to take bullish positions. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, just as I took those bullish positions, indeed the very day, the market started to sell off.
0: Got it. And those positions were unhedged?
1: Yes, they were unhedged. Although to some people in the bank Mm -hmm. who were not aware of our mechanisms, they looked hedged. The truth is that they were not hedged.
0: Okay. And then what happened when the losses started to happen? I mean, the prosecutors during the trial said that you kept kind of like a gambler were doubling down on your bets almost.
1: Well, ultimately, when a trade goes against you, if you believe that that trade is the right trade strategically Mm -hmm. over the long term, as it goes against you, you tend to average in. And unfortunately, we had lost control. We were under so much pressure at the time. Um, we had new clients coming in trading, asking us to structure new products, which were very difficult for us to manage. We were already under incredible strain because of the first six months Mm -hmm. of the year, you know, up until that point, I was probably sleeping four hours a night. So I was up all night, every night watching all the markets around the world. Mm -hmm. And by June and July, 2011, We were all really fatigued and we'd lost a lot of our sharpness and ability to make sensible decisions. Mm -hmm. We basically were under too much pressure. And as the market sold off, um, there was a lack of clarity of thought around what would happen next. And rather than step back and reassess whether the bullish call was the right one, Mm -hmm. we basically bought as the market sold off. We bought into the dip. Had we kept with the bearish trades, we would have been fine. Um, But obviously the hope was that since we had made the call that the market would rally, Mm -hmm. the hope was that we could buy into the sell-off in anticipation of the rally.
0: So it was a series of sort of wrong decisions coupled with the fact that the trades were unhedged that really made this loss spiral out of control.
1: That is correct. I mean, often prop traders do run unhedged delta positions. Mm-hmm. We ran unhedged delta positions for lots of different reasons. But in this case, they were primarily proprietary profit driven decisions. Yeah. And they were just the wrong choice. And we chased it when we shouldn't have.
0: So the, the illegality of what happened, uh, it was really the booking of the fictitious trades. That's what you were found guilty for ultimately because there's a separate mechanism the um you had an internal fund that you created for the etf desk called the umbrella or rihanna which was discussed at trial where you would sort of skim profits and keep them there so that that you could then sift it back into the book when there was daily trading losses is that correct at a basic level
1: at a very basic (laughs) level yes um the truth is that the book was a very expensive book. It was hard to run. It was very, very big. Mm-hmm. Um, back in 2007, it was over $50 billion in hedged size. So we were a source of considerable profit volatility for the bank because mm-hmm. it was so hard to hedge the complex book. We had mm-hmm. dividend risk, equity hedging risk, interest rates risk, etc. And those risks caused our p l to be very volatile. And because we were so junior back in 2007, after my manager at the time had left the bank, we were found in a position where we didn't know how to offset the increasing losses back in 2007 and 2008, where the markets were entering this period of unprecedented dislocation and volatility. Mm -hmm. And in 2008, I took the decision to generate a fund, that we could use to offset those costs to the book. Now, of course, the problem with that is that it means that I was misrepresenting the PNL, the profit and loss of the book, but it also meant that I was misrepresenting the risk to which the bank was exposed.
0: And how many people that you worked with knew about it?
1: A considerable number of people knew. It was something that a lot of our support guys were aware of, the guys on the desk were aware of, and it was... A way for us to deal with intractable problems. And so because the the mechanism supported our trading decisions, mm-hmm. I think it was accepted by everyone around us.
0: Do you think the people that knew just sort of essentially turned a blind eye because you guys were profitable for the, so long?
1: Yeah, there were people who turned a blind eye, but there were also people who were actively involved in its use.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The truth is that the criminality, or what I was found guilty of mm-hmm. um, by a jury of... of of 12 of my peers, was dishonestly exposing the bank to the risk of loss. Right, the fictitious Um, trades. The element of that that was dishonest was the mechanism that um, basically made it difficult to recognize what the bank was truly exposed to.
0: Can you explain that just a bit more for our listeners, just who don't understand what a hedge is and...
1: Yeah, so um, obviously um, if you take a position in any instrument, any financial instrument, it creates a a financial exposure, a financial risk to the institution. Mm -hmm. Um, For our client trading, that generally needed to be risk that was hedged. Mm -hmm. At some point it needed to be hedged in order that, the bank understood what its risks were and minimized those risks.
0: So it's a secondary trade that limits the risk of the main trade. The initial taking. trade, yes. Okay.
1: The problem with our book was that there's a large part of it that couldn't be hedged very well. Mm-hmm. We didn't Either there weren't products available for us to use to hedge, mm-hmm. or we didn't have the expertise to do it.
0: Could you talk a bit about what the mood was like at the time in 2011? Were you getting scared when you realized that the trades were going against you?
1: We were all under considerable pressure at the time. Um, As a trader, you learn over time to manage your emotional um, response to risk. Mm -hmm. As a result of the time that we'd spent on the desk, fear wasn't really one of the drivers. There was a desire to get it right. When it went extremely wrong, there was a desire to fix the losses. Mm -hmm. Fear wasn't the driver. It was just this extreme desire to make it better. Um, And that was born of loyalty to the institution, but also loyalty to the people to your left and right. People who, as a trader, your responsibility is to protect by being profitable for the bank and avoiding losses.
0: Yeah, you don't want to lose money.
1: Yes, but also... You know, when you work for an institution like UBS, if you are proud to be a member of that institution, it's not just about profit and loss. It's also about, you know, creating organic growth, creating confidence within the people you work with, gaining knowledge which you can share with everyone around you. There's there's a lot more to this than just profit and loss.
0: Okay. So... Tell me, in the days before you were actually arrested, what exactly happened? There was the all-bar-one crisis meeting mm. uh, where you and the three other traders on the desk mm. went across the street from UBS and realized at that point how big the loss was. What did you guys discuss?
1: We knew what the losses were prior to that discussion. Over that six-week period that the losses accelerated, and it literally only took six weeks. Various members of the desk were off on holiday um, at different times. And in the late period, the final three weeks, Mm -hmm. um, my supervisor was away. And me and my junior had sort of sat and thought about what to do about these losses for a considerable time. And we decided that once my supervisor came back, we would decide what to do, what choices to make. He came back on a Monday. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, Monday the 11th of September something like that mm-hmm. and we went to all bar one to have a talk about it and to decide what to do and we kind of went round in circles what should we do and I offered um, thinking that it was the right choice I offered to take full responsibility for the losses perhaps that was naive um,
0: why did you do that you told me before that you were ready to leave the industry at that point
1: yeah, so I'd had discussions with my partner. We had come to the conclusion that I wasn't happy. Despite the massive successes, the great p and we were turning in, mm-hmm. after all that time in the industry, it, it suddenly became clear that I just didn't enjoy being a trader. Although I was proud to work for UBS, mm-hmm. even generating profits was not something that made me feel happy. I was concerned about what it meant for the world the job I was doing. And as a result, I had a conversation with my partner and she said, look, I think it's time for you to decide whether you're gonna stay. Now I decided at that point, back in June, interestingly enough, Mm -hmm. to leave the industry. And unfortunately, it's a great (laughs) tragedy. Within literally weeks of that decision, the losses began. And it became about, okay, we need to get out of the losses and then I can leave. But I didn't wanna leave the desk UBS or my colleagues in a lurch and mm-hmm. we went to the end of that road and I sat with my colleagues mm-hmm. and having decided that I was going to leave anyway, it was like, okay, well, I'll fall on my sword and hopefully you guys will get an opportunity to continue to contribute to what the bank is trying to do. I think we were a bit naive, not realizing that it was so catastrophic that there was no way that right. anybody would be allowed to continue to do what we were doing. Right. Um,
0: You've told me this before. You didn't think that you were going to get arrested. You thought that if you fell on your sword, then you would lose your job and the other three traders would get to continue.
1: Yeah. And, you know, let's be honest. It was it was naive <laughs> to believe that considering, sure. considering what's happened since and considering yeah. what has befallen others who have had similar losses on their desks. If you look at losses at Socgen and going all the way back to Bering's Bank in 1994, Mm -hmm. you know, these losses have become bigger and bigger over time because the size of the positions that banks are holding and putting into the hands of individuals is getting bigger. But for some reason, we just didn't think that it would come the way it did because we were driven by an intent to do something positive for the bank. It wasn't that we were trying to generate bonuses for ourselves. Mm -hmm. It it, it wasn't about personal gain. It was purely about trying to do what we were being asked to do, which was a gargantuan task. You know, for example, as the Global Synthetic Equities team was created, Mm -hmm. we wanted to take the bank from position number nine in that industry sector to position number three in the industry sector and the large part of the responsibility for that seemed to be falling on our shoulders Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and we wanted to achieve it for the bank because that's what we were being asked to do yeah and so when it went terribly wrong we again completely naive but we thought that it would be a sort of okay well you know it's a catastrophe sure but i just because everybody knew what was happening i didn't think it would be deemed to be criminal, yep. obviously, since then, I realized that it was
0: <laughs> can you go back to the All bar one meeting? What happened after that?
1: After we finished the meeting, we went back to the desk, all four of us mm-hmm. um we kind of sat there. One of my juniors kind of sat and you know said, "You okay with this? You're going to be all right." I was a bit dazed and confused, but I was like, "Okay, yeah, it'll be fine. I'll just take it in my stride and that was on the Monday night. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, Tuesday and Wednesday, I had to try and think about how to do it, how to break the news to those who didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. And fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure which, the number of questions we were being asked about the position started to grow. Yep, compliance started to take notice. Exactly. And the credit guys started to take notice, etc. And it was starting to be escalated to areas outside of trading. Mm -hmm. And as a result... At midday on Wednesday, the 14th, I said to my supervisor, right, let's go outside. I'm going to send the email. Let's have a chat. So we Mm -hmm. went outside and he said, you ready to do this? I said, yeah. Um, We had a brief discussion about the content of the email, what I needed to say to try and isolate responsibility to myself. Yep. And uh, I started to walk off to go and send the email. And then he called me back and he said, I'm really sorry, Quake, but you do realize we're going to disown you now. And I said, you know what? That's okay. Um, I've made this decision. I'm doing it for you guys. Hopefully everything will be okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, <laughs> sorry, I um, went home because, if, interestingly enough, I didn't know the exact email address of someone that needed to be on the mail trail. So I went home so I could log into my UBS email from home mm-hmm. so I could send the email.
0: And you didn't live very far away from the UBS no, office I'd, at Spitalfields. I no, didn't,
1: I didn't live very far away. And so I went home, sent the email, and then I got a call to come back in. Mm-hmm. Took a deep breath and walked back to work. By then it was about 2 o'clock, 2.30, maybe 3. Mm-hmm. And then began a sequence of meetings with very senior people um, that and lawyers that dragged on till about, well, in the end, 1 a.m.,
0: yep and they brought you up to a conference room on the top floor of the u b s building
1: on the seventh floor of the u b s building yeah um
0: and they just wanted to know what the positions were, how to unwind them
1: yeah absolutely what you, yeah um, and why why you know the positions where they were the way they were, and you know you know primary questions were who who knew who knew about this mm-hmm. and obviously having started with the position that nobody knew, which mm-hmm. very quickly became untenable because it was obvious that that's not possible. Yeah. I stuck to that line that, you know, I was taking responsibility for it and that nobody knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, that was OK until I started to be presented with bits of chat conversations, etc., that showed that others did know. Mm-hmm. And I said, OK, well, they knew, but their knowledge was limited because mm-hmm. I was still trying to protect the people around me. We then had this process where a group of lawyers came in, the general counsel. It was really, really stressful. I had my partner on the phone during that period kind of saying, when are you coming home? When are you coming home?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I said, oh, I'll be home in about an hour or maybe two. And she was like, well, I've made chicken. I've roasted chicken and, you know, come home, have dinner. <sighs> but I couldn't. And I kept talking um, because I wanted to help out as best I could. And around about twelve o'clock, um, the lawyer said to me, "Oh well, you'll be able to go home soon." And uh, and half an hour later, they came in and they said, "We're really sorry, you can't go home. You, we've um, called the police." I'm sorry.
0: Yeah. No. 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 Take a break.
1: So uh, a couple of police officers from City of London Police came, mm-hmm. read me my rights. And uh, took me to Bishopsgate Police Station. And
0: And UBS didn't let you know through the whole process that day when you were giving them information and telling them what happened and confessing. You had no inkling at that point that they were going down the criminal route.
1: No. Okay. No, not at all. Um, they had called some lawyers to represent me. Sure. Um, but at that stage, no one was talking about, you know.
0: And what did the lawyers tell you? They told you to keep cooperating?
1: Yeah, they just said, you know, it's in your interest and that's what you're doing anyway. So just keep going tell them whatever you can to help them Mm -hmm. that's what I was doing anyway so there was no part of me that was thinking oh my gosh what I say now
0: can be used against me at
1: one point will be used against me so I just kind of said what I needed to say to insulate as many people as possible true Um,
0: so they took you onto to bishopsgate
1: yep and I Had my phone taken off me and my stuff. And then I was put in a cell with a bare sort of mattress. And
0: were you by yourself?
1: I was by myself and I couldn't have anything to write with. um, And it was really hard to distract myself. Obviously, I couldn't sleep. Mm Eventually, I asked for a Bible because that was the only way to sort of release the tension in my chest. You know, it was it was a difficult period.
0: It was also the only book they had.
1: It was the only book that I was allowed. But Fair that's enough. okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And two days later, at that point, you were at City of London Magistrates Court.
1: Yeah, so obviously... Um,
0: and that was the first time you were able to see your partner in the courtroom since you were
1: Yeah, so it had been two days on my own. Obviously, I'd seen the lawyers had come in, and they'd sort of made me aware that there was this... Global furore going on outside the police station, and that I was number one on the news. And it was really difficult because the first thought was, Oh my god, my parents, and the second thought was, Oh my god, my partner, is she okay? And I really hope she's okay. And I hadn't been able to speak to her. Mm -hmm. I asked the lawyers to pass my family and friends the messages just saying I was okay and that everything would be okay in the long run. Mm -hmm. And then on Friday, I got bundled into the back of a police car and When we got to the City of London Magistrates, there was nobody there. Uh, And I spoke to the lawyers. And then I was brought into the courtroom, and it was packed. It was full of my friends. I was there that day? It was incredibly emotional to look across and see everyone for the first time. I thought about them so much, um, and it meant so much for them to be there. And I just broke down crying. It was really tough. (laughs)
0: But you smiled at them. You made eye contact with them.
1: I needed to. I needed them to know that I was okay. Um, Of course, I mean that's all I cared about in that moment. That and expressing uh, how sorry I was for the miscalculations we'd made, and Mm -hmm. you know, so you know, there was two groups of people I was thinking about. You know, one was my institution.
2: Sure,
1: we'd failed in our mission to do what we needed to do. But also, my friends and family needed to know I was okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the first words that my lawyer spoke on my behalf was that I was sorry beyond words. Um, And that was true. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was sorry, not just for my actions, but that we had failed. But also, um, I needed to show my friends and family that I was okay. And so I looked across and I smiled and I nodded. And that was important for me.
0: And then you were denied bail.
1: Well, to be fair, we never asked for bail until sort of I'd been in prison for a good four months. I was on remand, but we never asked for bail. Although, you know, obviously there's a big deal made about me being a foreign national and how I might be a flight risk, which was ridiculous since I'd gone to the firm anyway. But This is
0: the whole point of being a, flight, well, <laughs> being a foreign national that so you actually want to stay in the country.
1: Well, I mean, this is the contradiction of terms, right? This okay. is my home. But anyway... Um, that's another issue
0: so you were in Wandsworth for how long was it nine months
1: yeah so I was on remand for nine months I was eventually given bail in June of 2012 Mm -hmm. I guess in order to prepare for the trial in order that we could have the best opportunity to bring forward my defense Mm -hmm. and that's what we did
0: Quakey, from the point that you were arrested up until the trial, did you have any support from UBS, any communication, either from the bank itself or from any of your former colleagues?
1: Quite a few of my former colleagues would write. Mm-hmm. Um, a few of them came to visit. And then after a while, a few who had been writing stopped writing. I later found out that they'd been asked to stop writing to me.
0: Who asked them to stop writing to you?
1: The institution. Okay. I don't know who at the institution, but they were asked to stop writing, and so they did. But that's... I understand that choice. It's, you know... (laughs) It can be quite frightening when you find out that actually what you think is private isn't private. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can understand why my friends made that choice. But I had... It didn't matter. I had considerable support from my friends and family This process taught me the importance of my friends and family. Up until that point, I prioritized my work and my institution above a lot of my personal relations. Mm -hmm. Although my relationships were strong and powerful and necessary for my growth, work was eating up a lot of my emotional energy. Mm -hmm. And so my friends and family suddenly had an opportunity, you know, we had an opportunity to reconnect. And so there was a silver lining in this process whereby suddenly I realized the importance what they meant to me and how I identified with them. And that was a, it was almost a blessing, I think, um, to have gone through this process and to have found my friends again. It's, It's a really beautiful thing.
0: Yeah. I've been covering trials for about 10 years and I've never seen anyone who was so well supported throughout the entire process, which is pretty amazing to see.
1: I have to say that I am extremely grateful for the support that my friends and family have shown you know, without them, I don't think I would have survived this process.
0: And your father, John, uh, is a former UN official?
1: Yes. Yeah, so my father used to work in peacekeeping for the United Nations.
0: And he flew into England and stayed here for the entire trial to support you?
1: He did. And again, I'm extremely grateful for that. It can be a very grueling process. And without family and friends, it just eats you alive.
0: So Quaker, at the trial, which lasted about nine weeks, yeah. it was... It was pretty intense. Um, Did you expect to be convicted?
1: Um, Yes, I think the chances of me being convicted were high. Okay. And I I fully expected that.
0: Then why Um, did you go to trial?
1: The difficulty for me was that initially I'd wanted to plead guilty because I wanted to go home as quickly as possible. Yeah, you Um, were going
0: down that path already.
1: Yeah. However, I realized it was about three or four months into my time in one's with. that if I didn't plead not guilty, I would be unable to help the world to understand what happened. I felt that, you know, I've always been conscious of the role of the finance industry in society as a whole. And I felt that if I pled guilty, uh, the truth about what happened would not come out. The involvement of others was a necessary part of helping other people learn the mistakes we made. Mm-hmm. And so I had to plead not guilty in order to tell the story. I'm sorry if that was a, a bad use of the platform of the court, because it transpired that it made me look like I was arrogant and that I didn't understand the mistakes that I'd made. Sure. But the priority in pleading not guilty was in order to tell the story as a lesson to others, to Mm -hmm. protect others from making the same choices that we made.
0: And so now the Home Office is trying to deport you. They served you with a deportation order in 2014. And they've just won a ruling that they can force you to go back to Ghana. You're appealing that decision. I am. Can you talk a bit about why you want to stay in England, why Britain's your home, and also if you are allowed to stay here and are able to work, what you want to do going forward.
1: Well, I've lived in the UK for 23 years now. Mm -hmm. I came here as a kid, um, 12 years old. I went to boarding school in Yorkshire. Um, The reason I was sent to the UK was because in my childhood, we'd moved around a lot. And my father wanted me to have a stable environment to grow up in, with male leadership figures who would give me guidance. Mm -hmm. And as a result of his job, fortunately, um, he was able to afford to send me to a good school, and I'm very grateful for that. But as the truth is, when you come to a place, when you're a young, a child, a young boy, you become acculturated. And over 23 years, I've made lifelong friends from the very first day that I came to England. Mm who are still standing by me today. And for them, as well as for me, in order to protect my identity as someone who is British in all but official assent, I don't have a passport, but that's because I never applied for citizenship because it never occurred to me that it was really necessary. Um, and also to be fair, I traveled so much for work that, the opportunity to submit my passport and apply for a new passport just wasn't there. Sure. So, okay, it's an administrative oversight, but the reality is I feel very British mm-hmm. because I've grown up here.
0: And you're the godfather to several children.
1: Yeah, I'm godfather to seven of my friend's children. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an amazing responsibility. And the reason, ultimately, that I would very much like to stay in the UK is that it's important to all of us that the kids grow up and understand who I am and that what happened is not necessarily because I'm a bad person, Mm -hmm. but that I made mistakes and that they can learn not to make mistakes, but that if you do make a mistake, you should stand back up and... Accept your responsibilities and try to do something purposeful in order to atone for them.
0: In terms of doing something purposeful, you've told me that you're interested in getting a PhD, possibly corporate governance compliance sort of area. Yeah. Okay. Um,
1: What I've, obviously, a lot of my thinking um, whilst I was in custody was about how it was that I'd got myself into a situation where I made decisions that were clearly bad decisions. Mm -hmm. And it felt like perhaps it was a function of education within the industry. Perhaps it was an inability to understand the conflict between industrial and institutional goals in the finance industry Mm -hmm. versus societal goals. And, you know, we've been seeing that recently quite a lot, where as our knowledge economies become increasingly complex, employees of big organizations find themselves as with VW, as with other financial institutions, in situations where they are conflicted between moral goals and industrial goals or Mm -hmm. institutional goals. And we're making mistakes because of that complexity. And I just want to learn, I, I want to do a PhD to understand the emotional drivers of those things and why people make those choices so that we can inform others and help others to avoid making the wrong choice in a similar way that I did.
0: And you're also interested in working with traders to make sure that they understand that even though the goals of compliance and management aren't always the same, to make sure that they don't fall afoul of the rules like you did.
1: Absolutely. I mean, recently I've been doing quite a lot of work with a gentleman who runs compliance, um, behavioral and ethics driven training for Mm -hmm. institutions in the city. And the way the stuff we're doing goes is that basically he teaches a lot of the fundamentals, the pillars of behavior, et cetera, that are expected of finance professionals. Mm -hmm. My role is to come in and try and turn that into a visceral and emotional experience so that people understand how it is that you can get into the situation despite having positive intentions of making terrible mistakes, mistakes that are ultimately criminal. And... From my point of view, I think the experience I've gone to means that I can talk to f- current traders, young traders, senior executives in a way that they understand what I've been through and mm-hmm. they know the mistakes that I've made. But also I can help them to think through how not to make the same mistakes.
0: Do you think you have a unique perspective because you made the mistakes with good intentions?
1: Um, you know, I can't speak for other people who what choices other people have made. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do know is that I still think honestly that my intentions were positive. Yeah. I was not driven by a desire to make big bonuses. I was not driven by a desire to take any money out of the system per se. Yeah. It wasn't an issue of embezzlement. It was simply a case of you know, trying to achieve institutional goals because that was a positive imperative for my organization.
0: Kwaku, how do you feel towards UBS now? Are you angry um, or resentful at the way they treated you? I mean, I remember during the trial, they had at least eight representatives there every single day. They had a barrister, they had solicitors, they had external and internal PR professionals making sure that you got convicted.
1: I understand why the institution needed me to be convicted. And I also understand why such a big team was needed because ultimately... I carried UBS on my shoulders and that needed to be erased from my character. You know, I said during the trial that UBS had become my family mm-hmm. that I loved my bank. And that's true. I don't I don't hold resentment. I don't I'm not angry because ultimately I understand why institutions behave the way they do. I just hope that my former colleagues and current UBS employees understand what their responsibilities are going forward, and Mm -hmm. that they hopefully can learn something from what I went through. I kind of hope that having made the choice to go to trial, to get a worse sentence than I would have if I hadn't, Mm -hmm. that the lessons that we exposed are of value to others in the industry. Anger is not an emotion that I generally carry anyway. I never have, and I doubt that I ever will. Mm -hmm. It's just not the way I'm built. You know, I went to a school a Quaker boarding school, which had the motto of non Sed omnibus, not for self, but for all. And so I made a set of choices for the institution. I failed and I made terrible mistakes. And me, along with others, cost the institution. But I'd hope that my former colleagues aren't angry because I would hope they would understand what was driving me. The people who knew me in the institution know what drove me, which was to advance the institution's goals. I'm not angry, I'm not resentful. I move forward and I hope that I'm able to achieve something positive for the industry and for society as, as a whole. And so there can be no anger there because I've learned so much. And I've, as I say, it feels like a blessing to have gone through this process, to have an opportunity to do something positive with it. And so, no, I'm not angry and I'm not resentful.
0: Do you think that UBS was so eager to make sure that you were found guilty? Because if you had been acquitted, then it would have been an indictment of the bank itself. It would have been that the culture allowed this to happen, allowed the trading loss. Whereas if you were found guilty, they could point a finger at you and say that you were the rotten apple. And this had nothing to do with them.
1: Well, that seems to happen a lot in the industry. A lot of individuals are required or asked or in the end are forced to take responsibility for institutional behavior. It's a great shame because Mm -hmm. it means that there is no institutional learning. The people who remain within the institution fail to learn because the institution leads them to believe that it was a rotten apple. They fail to look at themselves and say, we are part of a system that needs to evolve and to improve its behavior.
0: Why did this happen?
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's easy to just say, well, it's because he was a bad person and mm-hmm. he had, you know, bad intentions. And that's often the case in the finance industry. But it's not healthy for us. You know, we need to learn from the failures of individuals or groups of people as a reflection of cultural behavior. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I I, I really hope that message starts to come through across the industry. Because I think society wants the industry to learn that. But it's not happening because people keep being singled out.
0: Sure. Quake, I know how much you love music. Is there any song that you feel is really indicative of how you felt while all this was happening during your ordeal?
1: Uh yeah, well, I like all sorts of music, but there is one song by a hip-hop artist called Immortal Technique and mm-hmm. it's called Caught in the Hustle. Okay. <laughs> um, and I think it reflects a lot of what I've gone through, but also I think something for us, a message for our society as a whole. Mhm. How's it go? Okay. If you don't mind I'll read you Yeah, no, some please lines do. Um, from the chorus, it says, Ignorance is venomous and it murders the soul, spreading like a virus, running rare but out of control. So if I should ever fall and get caught in a hustle, let him know that I died while I fought in the struggle. From the hood rats to rich kids, lost in the bubble, spray paint it on the streets and in the subway turns, write it down and remember that we never gave in. The mind of a child is where the revolution begins. So if the solution has never been to look in yourself... How is it that you expect to find it anywhere else? For me, that encapsulates what I've been through because through prison, you spend a lot of time looking within yourself to understand what you've done wrong and what you can do with that. You realize that you have to look within yourself to find the energy and the drive and the message for everyone else. And so now I go forward and I hope that I can deliver something that can be of value to everyone else. Thank you. You are welcome.
2: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast.